Every year, all members of the Small Satellite community, scientific and commercial, gather in Logan, Utah for the Small Sat Conference. This year's theme was Small Satellites, Big Data. Specs alum and founder Anthony Hennig attended the conference with, and is with us today to discuss his experience and the news items that have come out of SmallSat 2017, this time on SpecsCast. Hello and welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Drew. Hi. And uh, today our guest is Anthony Henne. Hi, everybody. We are a group of students and alumni belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You, learn, you can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website specs.rit.edu. Today we'll be talking about chapters one and two of the book, Ignition, an Informal History of Rocket Propellants by John D. Clark. Please let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show for all of you. Okay, so I've got my coffee. We're ready to go. We're going to talk about Ignition, an informal history of rocket propellants by John D. Clark. And this book, um, TJ, you've said you've read it one and a half times before. Me and Drew are reading it for the first time, and then Anthony found it this morning. Yep. So we're going to go and uh, go through chapters one and two. If you Google Ignition John Clark on Google, the first result or the second result is a PDF that you can read along. Uh, for yourself. Um, we're going to split this up into a few installments. There's only 200 pages or so. Um, and we're going to discuss some of these chapters and, and learn about rocket propellants, but also like kind of marvel at the history of uh, where, how far, you know, technology has come since the late 1800s when they first got started. So chapters one and two are the early days. Um, basically, we're going to be talking about what, 1890-something? 1823 to 1939 is this whole section. Just, oh, like, on the opening of this book, is first of all, this is a fantastic read. It's really, really well written. It's very engaging. Um, I started reading it knowing I had something else, a commitment later in the day, and I just couldn't stop reading, so I missed that commitment. That's how good this mm-hmm. book is. You, oh, um, God, dude. But the... Uh, Clark, in his preface, which, you know, the point of a preface is to introduce the book, and he introduces it really well in this paragraph that the book is written not for the interested layman, or not only for the interested layman, uh, and for him I have tried to make things as simple as possible, but also for the professional engineer in the rocket business. For I have discovered that he frequently, abysmally ignorant of the history of his own profession, and unless forcibly restrained, is almost certain to do something which we learned 15 years ago, uh, and is not only stupid, but likely to result in a, in a catastrophe. So this book... I mean, that's like the perfect for this audience, this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> also, keep in mind, this book was printed in 1971. So this is right during the middle of the Apollo program. Uh, and this is like after he retired. So he worked all through the during the 50s and 60s developing, developing rocket fuels that were used during Apollo, Gemini, Mercury being a part of those teams, working with those colleagues. So there's a bunch of anecdotes about that and retiring right at the, after the first moon landing, but you know, right during the, the moon race. So this is like a, a good snapshot of all of that work from before World War II, during World War II, during the space race um, and all of the challenges they had and how it changes from literally a group of, amateurs in like professional societies they, they had rocket clubs of people who were interested by this idea of rocketry who came together uh and then it became kind of co-opted by military and by government because of the you know military advantages of rockets uh and then it finally does another transformation towards the end into nasa into space exploration and pushing that all the way to the moon yeah and you have to realize like what was going on at this time 
So I'm reading Beyond the Atmosphere, which is from uh, Homo Newell, who was like the boss of a lot of the original space test programs and everything. And you have to realize I'm also reading, I think, Living in Space, which is a history of the Skylab program. So here in 1971, a lot of the initial design of the space shuttle was already done. So they had uh, 1968 was the kind of the full official year that we see like the space shuttle coming together and everything. Although like, okay, it's going to have rings, it's going to have engines in the back, that all this kind of engine. So I think he definitely, he's like, okay, my, my job might be kind of done. I need to keep on reading this book. I want to see how he finishes the book. But you have Apollo walking, you have Skylab on deck, and you have the space shuttle coming up. And so it's a fascinating time where you have a lot of transition happening in a very, very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I want to um, also make a few more comments before we actually talk about the contents of the book. Um, the way uh, I'd like to discuss it would be like go chapter by chapter and each time we read a chapter, um, I, I've written down a question that I have, like a discussion question pertaining to that chapter. Um, just as a conversation starter, but uh, to get your opinions and kind of discuss it chapter by chapter, which will be make it, make it great for uh, people that want to follow along and uh, can actually like you know um, engage that way. Um, and then last thing, I want to establish where we're at in our knowledge uh, of rocket propellants before reading this book, because um, personally, I am familiar with things like um, hypergolic propellants you know, how chemical rockets work. And um, I know like hypergols are super toxic and stuff, but they've been around forever. Everyone's always used, uh, you know, RP1 and oxidizer in my brain. I don't, I just, it's just always how it has been. Um, but I never really thought about the start. I think the best part about this book is that, you know, people have this conception. It's like, oh, rocket fuel, like RP-1 and liquid oxygen or space shuttle, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. Like RP-1 has been around forever. It's like, no, like there's a whole chapter, spoilers, a whole chapter. They're like, this whole gasoline thing is not working well. We need to invent better gasoline, better kerosene. And they go through the whole process of like determining what the actual formulation for RP-1 is. Like they try jet fuel and that's not good enough and they actually figure out and, you know, specify the derivative of what becomes RP1. Um, and so like things like that are just some awesome things to like keep in mind that we're going to get to because uh, it's this book is amazing. As I've been introduced to uh, space exploration, you hear about what is currently being used and what has been used historically for space exploration. But where we are in the beginning of this book, is the very inception of um, liquid propellants and rocket exploration in general. Not space exploration, but just the exploration of how we can use propellants. So this this is way earlier and way deeper than my knowledge is. So I'm excited to start reading it. Okay, I want to dig into chapter one. Chapter one is how it started. That's the title. The early days were full of um, what seemed to be renegade chemists, you know, like people with their benefactors and they just have this money and they, they start testing stuff. Like it, it's like the wild west. They just mix this stuff up, light it on fire and say, Hmm, this, this works pretty well, I guess. Um, and so that's like the late 1800s, right? Yeah. The full page. It's impressive, but not very informative title. He's talking about, um, an initial paper saying, was the exploration of space with reactive devices. And it's author was one Constantine Ed Edwardrick Kowalski. Wait, I, I hope I said that correctly. An obscure school teacher in the equally obscure town of Borisk in the Kaluga province. Yeah, let's take a moment to just kind of let that sink in. Uh, Toslavsky, uh, that is Toslavsky's rocket equation, the kind of the defining mathematical equation that defines all rockets and like how you design space going vehicles. Uh, and in his paper, he's like, well, not only is it possible to explore the vacuum of space, the only way to explore the vacuum of space is with these reaction engines, these rockets. Um, and it's actually really interesting. The whole book chronicles all these propellant developments and dead ends and 
successes. Uh, but he just jumps into it. It's like liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen are ideal fuels for this. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, so yeah, like today we're like, look at the space shuttle, look at like the Centaur upper stage. Like those are high energy upper stages and like that makes sense. Uh, and then the author goes into, it's like, well, Tosasi is lucky because not even 20 years ago, liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, didn't, no one knew those existed. So he goes into that whole history going back in time of, you know, actually liquefying different gases. And they got to a point where they thought there were some un unliquefiable gases or pure gases that just wouldn't liquefy. But eventually technology caught up so they could liquefy air, they could liquefy oxygen and eventually get to hydrogen. And so like there's there's this huge stepping stone from how what, what we can do with the current level of technology and like how we can perceive what is possible. And at this point, you know, what 80 years or 90 years before the moon landing you have the first person who's like, you know, all the technologies in place, we now have a, a vague path of how to explore other planets. I, I have a specific point that I want to make after reading this. This is what's stuck in my, my brain here. Um, so these experimenters and stuff, you know, we're coming up with their ideas and, and publishing them in the scientific community and stuff. Um, and a few of them independently discovered... Uh, the combination of nitrogen tetroxide as an oxidizer and and um, something else as a fuel. Like some people are using gasoline, kerosene, whatever. But they all kind of found nitrogen tetroxide independently. Um, and they, they published their findings to the scientific community, which is, you know, relatively open. Um, I don't know if it's like because information wasn't as easily shared or not, but not all of these discoveries were really appreciated um, by by the community. And then you have World War II come along in 1939. And um, so a lot of interesting rocket development became closed off, um, became classified for military purposes. So how my question is, how important do you think public scientific discourse is in developing new technologies like this? Um, because it's a common thought that the military has technology years more advanced than what's commercially available at any given time. So would technology advance as quickly if it weren't classified or does it need that military funding to accelerate it? And um, what do you think would have happened if, you know, World War II didn't classify all this stuff? Anthony, your, your eyes are bugging out. Yeah. Let's, okay. let's start this conversation. Yeah. This is a, this is a big topic and everything because you have to think about why are these guys mixing chemicals together? And like their sheds and everything. This is a, a beautiful definition of basic research. And so just to lay out some theoretical grounding, um, some kind of framing to all this, we can talk about research in three different ways. You talk about basic research, which is the can and a little bit about the how, right? This is, okay, if I mix these two chemicals together, can they do something cool? Right? And then you just start mixing stuff together and it turns blue or it explodes or it turns into a plastic. It's like, whoa, that was cool. Wow. <laughs> you know, the next step is like, okay, well, I have this cool thing. What can I do with it? And this is like use case inspired research. A lot of what NASA has been trying to do recently is use case inspired, like asteroid redirect. Rest in peace. Asteroid redirect was a use inspired kind of research where it's like, we're going to go to somewhere, we're going to test out a technology, we're going to do some cool science at the same time, but we're going to test something out for a reason. And then you have applied research. And applied research is, okay, I have this thing. It can do something. We understand the how it does something. And we kind of understand the why it does something too, typically. And now that, that final applied is, should we do something with it? Right? Like if I mix those two chemicals together and I get a really cool plastic that doesn't transmit heat, then I say, well, I should use this to insulate something. Or I should use this to like isolate a a hero plate from a base. And so I think I think there is a discussion about how technology is throttled at different stages in that development, right? Like at the very beginning, I think it was great that this was basic research. These were people, I'm not going to say goofing around, but these were people seeing can something happen and how does it happen? But 
when we get in, I, I think I think the debate where you can start to have or a really good place to debate it from the idea of classification is when you start talking about why something is happening or how should you be using it. There are definitely some applications, and this is why ITAR exists, um, where it's like, well, how should we use this guidance algorithm that can work at Mach 7 while it's falling towards the ground? And we're like, well, people might be using that for ICBMs, and we should limit how these people are using these new types of research. Um, so I think there's definitely, like, at the basic level, when we're trying to figure out the mechanics of things, I think it's definitely reasonable to share basic research. But when you start thinking about the application of it, I think that gives you some grounds to say, maybe we should hold off on telling everyone about how to do this thing that could really hurt people. Or maybe we should hold off right. on from sharing this thing that would give our enemies an incredible advantage. And by the time they figure it out themselves, well, maybe we release it then. So, I, I don't know. I'm with you on it definitely forced because of it. Like, they talk about the um, Society for Rocket and Spaceflight, if I remember correctly. Does anyone remember that? Uh, pre like, priori to Pina Munde and everything. That there was this whole community about, like, how do we do a rocket spaceflight? And I think it definitely thrived, but the minute the minute application came into the view into the purview of these researchers, I think there might be grounds to say, okay, maybe we should hold off on telling everyone how to make an explosive chemical that you can throw at something. So, just a, just a viewpoint. Just a it's a big question, a big but just something to think about. No, well, I think that's uh, like an awesome insight, and you know, especially when you're talking about the Cold War, when you had two sides developing, you know, brand new weapons with amazing capabilities like that need for classification definitely comes into play. Um, kind of on a different take, I had a question kind of similar to Phil's, um, which was, so you have all these independent, like, rocketry clubs, you had individual scientists or research groups, and what I wanted to kind of think about is this was taking place a little bit in the 1800s, but mostly like 1910 to, to 1939 before everything became militarized. If for some reason that phase of development hadn't happened in the 19, early 19th century, but instead had happened in the early 21st century, how things would be different, right? Where you have people who are geographically isolated, separated by language barriers, by different government policies, uh, if you have them in a more modern environment with something like the internet, right? The internet was invented for academic researchers to share information uh, with. And so I would wonder if there's the same kind of culture would have sprung up with independent researchers kind of duplicating efforts, or if it would have been um, either quicker or had progressed differently. So I think it would be, I think small sats or, or cube sats are a good case study for this, right? People are you know, they have a problem and that's, they can get stuff into space, but they have these huge satellites. Well, you know, we don't have that much money. We don't really want to do that much. Let's make a smaller one. And then open communities like the CubeSat standard and stuff come up. Obviously, the military has probably been pursuing this problem for a while. And then it starts working together where there's this whole ecosystem of people doing cool things, sharing cool things. The U.S. government is through NASA and probably classified things are using CubeSats to do both um, public just experiments and, and stuff like that. So. so so back to SmallSat and everything, there was a ton of de Department of Defense here or at the at the conference yeah. and everything. And I think what, I think you're right. I think we're seeing this kind of basic research happening at the CubeSat level and we're seeing the applied research happening too. And because we've placed boundaries on it, we don't have scientists blowing themselves up in their own like classrooms when there isn't a class around. We have students and we have industry and everything. We're starting to see it. And there's also unique conditions. So in systems engineering, sometimes you hear about the concept of the dominant design, right? We've chosen a way to perform a function that is superior to all other ways to do it. Um, calls are a great example. How many three-wheeled calls do you see? Not that many, because four-wheels is better. How many six-wheeled calls do you see? Not that many. There's a few, 
you know, for very specific applications, but in general, four-wheel calls are a great thing of design, performance, capability. Yeah, with CubeSets, we're seeing really interested, interesting bounds being placed on people that are forcing individuals to find new dominant designs which require basic research and applied research. I mean, most of the discussions, I, I don't think there was really a bipropellant talk at SmallSet. You know, people weren't saying, oh, we're going to ignite all P1 and everything. They were talking about electrospray thrusters. They were talking about a thruster that melts gallium, a metal, and then spews out gallium because it's electrically conductive and you can use it like an ion engine, but it's it doesn't have anything that can leak. And I think that's the kind of interesting thing that we're seeing within the small set community. We're forced to come up with new solutions to basic problems, and there's enough support that we're seeing a wide variety of solutions come out of it. I mean, I, I have, I'm going to contradict myself here and say that, you know, I, I, I disagree with myself. I don't think small sets are a good case study for this. Here, with propellants, that's some people messing up and, and you know, exploring new ground. Small sats are a derivative of big sats. You know, they, they saw this archetype, you know, uh, tailored it to suit their needs and, and challenge that archetype, but it's still based on something else. Um, maybe a better thing is like artificial intelligence or something that, that it, or, or I don't know, like something that's not based. You can say electric cars are based on cars. Sure. You can say that small sets are based on big sets, but like what, what has sprung up that is totally changing the way people develop it because of the ability to communicate on a global scale. I don't know if I can find. I don't know if I can find a, uh, an example for you, but it seems to me like we're talking about, um, as I said, derivative of small sets as a, as a whole field is derivative of large sets, and large sets is derivative of, is an application of a lot of different fields. And this, what was talked about in ignition in this first couple chapters, the development of these fuels, uh, was chemistry applied and I think that if we were to look for where we're trying to see where, where the future of new developments that can have this free application, uh, open discourse, uh, without any sort of, um, military or government clampdown on it for the need of security, we'll see that probably, or even industry, because, you know, you want to make money, you're going to hold on to your patents and protect that information. But the, I think we'll see that in, physics research, in medical device application, uh, electronics components, that's, electronics components is getting a little bit more towards what might be under wraps, but it's more the, the building block type industries or type fields that are going to produce these sorts of uh, potential free exchanges that lead to a bunch of other developments. Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm with you, Drew, on that. And I'm going to address Philip Fulce, and then I'm going to address you a little bit. So, um, when we're reading the Fulce chapter of Ignition and everything, and TJ brought this up, that the developments of energy-dense fuels, cryogenic fuels, specifically when we talk about bipropellants, wasn't possible until certain necessary fundamental technologies were developed, and then people could apply them. Consistently, we're going to see technological developments base themselves off each other over time. And it's good for basic research to be able to trade these things so you can stand on the shoulders of giants and everything. And that's that's how this stuff works. Like, we didn't figure out geodesics until we figured out geometry. And we found out geometry because we could invent a protractor. And we built the protractor because we wanted to look at the stalls. And that all leads up to the sextant, which might, you know, it civilization tech tree kind of thing. Um... And to Drew's point, you bring up a really piece, interesting discussion that's been happening, I know in my field, a lot, um, that you see like with the early development of the computer, right? People made choices about how they built things, and there's a reason why we have a motherboard, and there's a reason why you buy the motherboard with a processor already installed. In a perfectly modular board, you could buy a motherboard without a processor. And you can kind of do that, but they're designed hand-in-hand, because hand, there's very, very close dependencies about how that processor connects to its other components and how it communicates to the rest of the computer. 
right? But we made the we made choices that said, okay, we have these chips of RAM that we can plug in, and we have a hard drive that can be separate and then connected. Um, and so you see that when certain architectural choices are made, then you suddenly open up the whole the whole realm for future development. Like CubeSats, I think I'm going to come back and I'm going to say this might be a good example of where we're going to see basic research. There is something about the size and the complexity necessary to build a CubeSat that makes it compelling to solve and makes it easy to solve for the kind of people you have available, right? That there's something about the size and the processor and the PC-104 standard to make everything uh, connect, or the um, UNESCO standard, I think. No, that's not. UNISOC standard that the Europeans use. There's something about the size of the problem that makes it solvable, and there's something about the size of the problem that makes it suddenly capable for everyone to participate and do basic research about. I agree, like, with... Like, when Drew talked about... You know, propulsion is kind of a, a different topic, um, and we're getting like the first chapter and the first two chapters is really like the very beginning where, you know, they're taking very basic research, um, and I don't think we'll get to the like applied research stage as uh, Anthony mentioned until like later on. Um, but I, you know, all the points you brought up are you know totally applicable. Um, and it's really interesting to see how that is going to evolve over the next 10 years. And by the next 10 years, I mean from 1930 to 1940, but uh, it kind of, you know, from a historical perspective. So I, th I actually think that it's like this book is a case study between basic research to applied research to final product. Uh, and there's actually, you know, jumping ahead, unfortunately, some chapters that they're looking for specific applications and that drives people down many different avenues that are dead ends or actual, the actual solution. And I think probably the best example, which is highlighted in the first chapter is that one of the first people, Tuskowski with the rocket equations, like the best, one of the best chemical fuels is liquid oxygen, liquid, liquid uh, hydrogen. If you're only looking for the best, then good. Congrats. The first guess was right, um, but in order to get there, in order to actually meet the real-world challenges, there's 10,000 permutations on that road. I think that's like the main lesson to get away from this, is that for a lot of things, the best possible answer is not always the right answer at the beginning. And you can't get there without trying and failing and, I guess, blowing things up. Yeah, and I think that's that's where, where we are in this book, is the kind of it's not purely random, but this random and um, natural evolution of the science as independent people uh, experiment in different ways and come to similar conclusions or different conclusions and explore a myriad of different possibilities, which is different from what we do with trying to develop a product or yeah. in systems engineering where you are trying to structure your approach. And not to say that their experiments weren't structured, but compared to what we do when we say design a satellite, we have an objective in mind, this sort of research is relatively very random. Yeah, it, it's and there's some interesting balance too, right? Um, you, you can very easily see when it works, you can very easily see when it doesn't work, so the cost of experiment is low, there's not a lot of knowledge. Um, I was just kind of thinking if it's too unsafe, well, people aren't probably going to hear about it because the whole thing blows up, or the whole lab blows down. So there's some interesting boundaries to like actually evaluating the outcomes and everything and passing it along that we don't see with a lot of sciences. It's another reason why computing, I think, is probably a really, really hot field right now for research. Because I can, I can hit F5, and I can run my code, and I'll see if it works. And if it doesn't work, well, I can try again. And I, I don't know, it seems reminiscent of what these early spacecraft engineers, I guess, or rocket rocket scientists. God, yeah, the rocket scientists. Trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, boy, that's a really Scientists good... that work with rockets, not scientists. Man, that's basic research, man, basic research. I came up with a solution to a problem that I had. <laughs> My brain is so fried from small set. Um, so I, I think... That's a pretty good discussion of what happened in chapter one, uh, how how it started, you know, 
in uh, John D. Clark's words. But um, let's move to chapter two. This chapter is called, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but Preenemundi. It's the it's the equivalent of JPL in Nazi Germany. So I pulled Pienemundi from the um, okay. Space History Podcast. I love you guys, but the Space History Podcast is wonderful and it is a delight for the ears. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, it's a okay. it's a guide. So so how do you say that again? Uh, Pinamundi, Pinamunda, Pinamundi, Pinamundi, yeah. and JPL. It's the title of, of chapter two. So this is about uh, the start of the Jet Propulsion Lab um, in Pasadena, California, and uh, a very similar research program going on in Germany at the, during World War Two. So before we get into questions, we have there is a particular anecdote that. I want to bring up because with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, you may have heard the story of how JPL was founded, where students at the school were testing rockets and there was an accident and G Caltech at Caltech and Caltech told the students, uh, we really like what you're doing, but you need to go, go away from the school and blow up other, other people's buildings. Uh, and if you go on the NASA website and the GPL website, that's pretty much what they have there. Um, but in the story, I mean, they still don't they still call him uh, like Frank Molina and his crew. The, uh, don't they have nicknames for that? It's the Suicide Squad. Oh right? my this, God! Why are so, these guys so awesome? Yeah. So there's you know there's this group of researchers that were working on a PhD uh, thesis, which was to build this liquid rocket. Um, and they did some test firings. NASA has some really cool historical footage where their liquid oxygen line broke, and so they just had a jet of streaming fire, and the, the line just started spraying all over a field. Is this, um, is this when death metal got invented? Like, these guys are calling themselves the Suicide <laughs> Squad. They have, like, flaming pipes. They're just like, man, we should paint our faces or something and play, play some kind of <laughs> guitar that's electric. My God, this is amazing. They're, they're too badass for that. They just they blow stuff up. Metal. So metal. Just, yeah. <clears throat> oh, God. Yeah, so let's go through this anecdote. But anyways, um, so, like, pretty much, like, there is a reference to an explosion. Um, and one of the things I really, really like about this book is that there is an insane level of detail into a lot of these things because... This uh, this guy was working for 20 years alongside all of these researchers. The PhD advisor is uh, Dr. Von Karman, who was on the Explorer One satellite project. Yeah. And uh, so the, you know, there's a very tight knit community of of scientists here. Uh, but anyways, uh, Dr. Molina, who's one of his PhD students, uh, instead of working outdoors as any sane man would have done was so ill-advised as to conduct his tests in the mechanical engineering building, which on the occasion of a misfire was filled with a mixture of methanol and N2O4 fumes. The, later, the latter, reacting with the oxygen and the moisture in the air, cleverly converting itself to nitric acid, which settled corrosively on all the expensive machinery in the building. Molina's popularity with the establishment suffered a vertiginous drop. He and his apparatus and his accomplices were summarily thrown out of the building, and he was thereafter known as the head of the suicide squad, Pioneers are seldom appreciated. Oh my God! Yeah, this book these... is full of these little anecdotes because Clark describes it in his preface that he would go to these conferences and meet with these other, you know, fifty people who are in his field, and then you know, say, go to the bar afterwards and say, you know, I, I read your paper, but I've written papers too. So what really happened? And then they he, he gets all these little anecdotes from all the people who are in this industry. Mm -hmm. I love the casual, just like he, he's so it's so opinionated, but in the in the like the smart, snarky old man way, you know. Yeah, you can't help but feel like he's right. Yeah, he just he just um, has that air of aged wisdom, but also like slightly jaded. That you're just like, I'll accept this as fact, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I guess I'm <laughs> so. Uh, I have another. Um, similar anecdote but this is from the german side um that i i that really stuck out to me and really exemplifies uh that uh, on both sides of the atlantic at the same time it, it's very similar what's going on and so uh this is from page 15 about uh scientists uh Zabur Zaburowski and mueller 
After a long night session searching through old chemistry texts for substances that were violently reactive with nitric acid, Zerborowski and Mueller would soak a wiping rag with a promising candidate and spray it with nitric acid and see how quickly or if it burst into flames. An old used wiping rag from the machine shop would sometimes ignite much faster than a new clean one soaked with the same fuel. Traces of iron and copper from the shop as the metals or as salts catalyzed the ignition reaction. So these, these guys are literally just like scrounging together whatever they have, trying it out. Oh man, this thing burns faster and it was dirty. That's weird. Maybe it's because, you know, and it, it's the same stuff. It's nitric acid. It's, it's, it's just insane. How terrified would you have been if you're like another engineering researcher and you just see these guys running around and they're like, <laughs> we gotta find rags, gotta find rags. And they're just like pulling it out of cabinets and they're like, oh, I've got precious metal rags. These will burn fast. <laughs> And you're just like walking by their office late at night and you just see like flashes of color coming out of their office room. God, these guys are so cool. Yeah, and then you're you're like at your shop or whatever and you see this weird disheveled guy come up to you and say like, hey, are you, are you done with that? Are you done with that shop rag? And it's like the one that you've been wiping your you're face like, with and stuff. Like please, after you eat lunch. please take this from me and never talk to me again. Just please leave. <laughs> But this is probably what these guys dealt with. I mean, I can understand why the community was so small. These guys were going around setting things on fire and asking for shop rags, and yeah. But the the, the drive and like the kind of Wild West feel, that's how I perceive new space with respect to how old space is now. Like, I, I get the same vibe from places like... Complete disregard you know, I mean, for safety. <laughs> okay, okay. So with that comment, I'm going to ask my first question. Do safety measures and common sense sometimes get in the way of discovery? Or are these guys just nuts? Oh, regulation is going to stifle it in some way, but I mean, it's not. Safety measures aren't going to prevent discoveries getting made. Sometimes they happen so randomly. Like using the shop rags, you can say, you know, this is unsafe, but it's also just that random little bit of, they, they weren't being especially unsafe. They weren't, you know, putting it in a glass vial and standing over it as they combined these chemicals. No, they did um, that too. The, that was the these two. One. They no. just took a, a test tube and they put one liquid in and then they would put the other liquid in and it would explode the test tube. And they're like, oh, that's a success. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this out here. Um, <laughs> we hear about the people who were successful. I would argue that rocket and propellant engineering has a unique safety boundary. That if they were too successful, you might not have thought about it. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> just just in the first two chapters, I think uh, one individual blew off four of his fingers. Many many people blew up blew up their entire labs and either stopped entirely or they're like, okay, that fuel and oxidizer mixture is no good. I'm just going to completely try the other direction now. Um, we got the nitric I'm, acid rain. One was sent to the hospital, and then there was one German uh, uh, rocket scientist who blew up his lab and himself. So yeah. I think there was only one death described in the first two chapters. The ones that we know about. <laughs> oh my god. So I just want to say, like, on, on the more structured and regulated side, sometimes you can't even change a valve without getting... A safety guy who's not really familiar with the project but knows a lot about safety and what's you know dangers that could go wrong to come and look at it before you can even proceed to do a different test is, is that type of thing can that stifle this this discovery that might just happen organically if you're just trying new things and if so like have we found the middle ground or or is it good to have both going on at the same time you need both has new space lost an astronaut? Amos 6 is, is a prime example. What if that was a dragon test? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have a normalization of risk. You have... This This is why maybe CubeSats are so fun. Because at the end of the day, you threw up a metal box into space, right? And it either worked or it didn't. But it depends on what kind of research you're doing, I think, is going to be the first part of my, my, my disagreement with your viewpoint. Um, mm -hmm. you know, different types of research have different needs in terms of their safety, risk, and benefit to society or benefit to a company that's performing them or doing that kind of research. 
you know, the other thing is, when we talk about spaceflight, there's usually the idea that we are, we are pushing the limits in one direction or another. When we talk about Apollo, Gemini, Mercury, Space Shuttle, Orion, we're talking about human, human lives in a tube flying, right? Mm. And people, I, I think you can't be gallivant with that kind of thing um, because if there's a social dimension to it, an economic dimension, a policy dimension, all this kind of stuff. Um, you can't just disregard it. You know, and when we talk about NASA, let, let's use NASA for example, let's talk about something like New Horizons, okay? It isn't just, oh, well, we got into space at a fair. You know, this is something that Planet Labs or Planet does. It's like, oh, one of our CubeSats failed. Ah, whatever, we're just going to move another satellite, another one of our 150-some satellites into the right position to take up the slack. When you spend a whole bunch of money making a mission, and that is supporting an entire scientific community, it isn't just the people who are building the rockets and building the spacecraft, but it's the people whose future, financially, scientifically, professionally, depend on a certain camera working on a spacecraft. Then it's like, oh dang, so we have like, we're responsible for 300,000 people's livelihoods. Maybe we should double check everything. And then on top of that. Oh dang. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, you're saying, you know, let's look at New Horizons in particular. Oh, we're flying a gigantic nuclear battery duct tape to the side of it. Hmm. Maybe we should make sure that, that if, if the vehicle explodes, that that thing can hit the earth and not crack open. And so you over-engineer an RTG, for example, so that I think they were talking about um, Apollo 14. I, did they find that RTG? I think they're, they're, they know exactly where the RTG is because it's managed to hit, hit the atmosphere, blown up, and it's in the bottom of the ocean where someone went and claimed it. Um, but yeah, it didn't crack open. They over-engineered it because they're dealing with safety, people's livelihoods. They're dealing with astronaut safety. Um, there's a lot of companies who stake a claim on developing a piece of technology, and I think that's maybe where the difference is. These guys were running around setting stuff on fire, right? They are using shop rides and chemicals. When we talk about a lot of modern space programs, it isn't basic research anymore. A company is staking a claim on building a hyperspectral imager that's going to cost them a couple million dollars in revenue, where they're expecting to sell that camera to uh, Earth observation team if they give their first one to a Mars observation team. And they are relying, they are staking their whole company on, oh god, oh god, I really want to see if the hyperspectral imager works. So just something to keep in mind is that the nature of the type of innovations we're making, we're still making basic innovations, but when you talk about old space and new space, they are doing something fundamentally different than setting rags on fire. Yeah. But the commercial crew area of development is is the intersection between those as you mentioned you know if you take this sort of uh, i don't know shoot from the hip style of engineering that um you know is stereotypical of new space yeah that's really good for software engineering where if you hit f5 and your code crashes you can restart your computer yeah but if you hit f5 and an astronaut dies that's a different ballgame yeah there's no quick load and quick save in real life (laughs) I tried playing KSP without quicksave once. How fun was that? Emphasis on the once. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun until... Um, Who'd you lose? I don't, so what I did was I, I chose not to fly the big three. I chose not to fly, fly people that I recognized and just flew no names. <laughs> wow. I'm that type of player. <laughs> it, it'd be super funny to like... This is a terrible, terrible experiment. This is a terrible... This is ethically unsound. Like, listeners, beware. This is probably the worst idea ever. But to have, like, complete novices and everything sit down to KSP and, like, slowly teach them how to play KSP and, like, change the penalty level that they, like, physically feel like a little shock or something, like if they lose an astronaut, and just see how... Every time they log in, they they have to read or, like, watch a funeral service. Yeah! And just imagine, like, how quickly you'd say everything should be space probes. <laughs> if you ever yeah. played uh, Buzz Aldrin's Race into Space, no? I'm not, no. 
No, I want to. It is a uh, 90s. It is, there's an Android app. They ported it to Android. It's like a dollar. Still have a Windows phone. <sighs> well, you should, you should switch because those are no longer security updated. Yep. But anyways. I'm sorry for laughing. Uh, anyways, uh, in Buzz All in Rachel's Space, uh, that game is ridiculously hard because uh, you can do all this research and development, and that will update the safety factor, which you can get up to like 80%, 90%. Um, but the game does a random dice roll at all these different steps. And so those are like hardware checks. Uh, and so if your dice roll is, if the dice roll is greater than your safety check, then things go bad. Uh, and so, you know, by spending money on research and development, you can try to get up there until you get to a point where in order to get to, you know, 80 plus 90% safety, which is what you, you want, uh, you have to just fly it because flying will build up reliability. Um, the reason I bring this up is that when you kill an astronaut, uh, there's like a whole funeral and uh, it's bad. Your budget yeah. just, just gets destroyed and the president calls you and is very disappointed and it's very Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess one thing, one disadvantage to KSP, and at the same time it is an advantage, is how failing is okay. And I think... Playing on hard mode with no quick save, with, you know, every time you lose an astronaut, you have to remember them. Um, and if you play with, like, funding on and, and all this other stuff, it gives you a real appreciation of the significance of, of space flight and how, how hard rocket science is. And how, like, I don't know, it, it, it's just like a sense of, I don't know, what's, what's the word? Being humble. Uh, uh, it's like a humbling experience almost to try to go and develop or recreate history through something like Buzz Aldrin or, or KSP. And you have a respect for how far we've come and, and the, the work people have done. And it also makes things super annoyed. It makes me super annoyed when people say like, when people disregard it, you know, or, or they say, oh, well, hey, NASA, can you just like, you know, it'd be cool if you like had a lander on Europa and it like burrowed down under the surface. But we don't want to up your budget at all, and we still want it to be 100% successful. And it's just like, it, you know, there's a magnitude to these sort of things, everything that goes into it. Yeah, I, I just want to ask, has, I, I know we've done stuff at Lake Vostok and everything, and I think they've done one test so far of a conceivable, like, hot water hero to go down into Europa, uh, down in Antarctica. But yeah, it, the complexity required to do some of this stuff is so overwhelming, it's not even funny. Like, to land on Europa, mm -hmm. that's, I think that requires, like, 0, 15 kilometers per second. No, no, to get into orbit around Europa, it's like 15 kilometers per second. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that is a tremendous amount of energy. It's a tremendous amount of energy. I mean, we could only land on Mars. 1976. Oh, yeah, we, we still haven't gotten that reliable part down, I'm just saying, like... <laughs> I, I love you, Shirpirelli. I love you, I love you too, Beetle 2, but... <laughs> Oh, I'm so sad about that. Rest in pieces. RSVP. <laughs> RIP. Oh, small sad destroyed my brain. But no, I mean, like, if if you look at Viking, Viking 1 and 2, they put, like, what, 24 engine nozzles on Viking 1 and 2, and their control system was pretty much like, if ground too close, fire engine. And that was it. <laughs> they didn't even know what the surface looked like. So... Just something to keep in mind. So kind of kind of on the, the same vein of what we were talking what Phil was talking about. Uh, it's really interesting in chapter two they start talking about obviously the Nazi Germany with the V two A four rockets. On the American side, rocketry was focused on JATO devices. So that's uh, what does JATO? Jet assisted yeah. takeoff. So Basically, rockets you would strap onto planes that would give a boost of thrust when the plane is fully loaded. And once it gets in the air and starts burning fuel, it's light enough to land. Uh, and that way you can launch more fully fueled planes, heavier loaded planes. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. They started to talk. There's a big discussion about different research groups, and they finally find a substance, a uh, mixture of aniline and red fuming nitric acid, uh, which are both very miserable chemicals. Uh, but they find uh, two hypergolic chemicals that can react fast enough that are storable. 
Um, but the one issue is that its freezing point is very close to water. And if you're trying to have a just you know, this Jado mm-hmm. bottle that can work in the desert versus working in the Arctic, uh, that has to be as soon as you press that button, the plane will take off kind of thing. Uh, that doesn't work. But the army, because they're on the bleeding edge, the army's like, you finally got it to work at least once. Just make as many as you can. We'll take them. But you really should fix this. And so I guess my question is, once you try everything and figure out what you're, you know, once you get it to work once, what is the process to optimize for that application? And whether it's ideal to go for that optimal solution or whether, you know, getting it to work and like satisfying the customer. It's like here, we promise next time we'll have a, a better solution, whether that's worthwhile. If you can't afford to fail a couple times, you can't, you have to optimize the, the first try. You have to get it right the first try. I think I think there's a lot more to this too. So this is, this is getting into my resource territory. What do you optimize for? Do you optimize for mass? Do you optimize for science mission? Do you optimize for delta V? Do you optimize for, you know, communication rate? Do you optimize for probability safety or probability of loss emission? To minimize that. Like, how how do you make those choices? And it varies for every type of mission. Um, some missions have hard deadlines, like the Discovery class missions. Here's your money. Here's your timeline. Get it done. That's it. But like. Mm-hmm. It, you can't just run an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you have to choose what you're optimizing for. You have to choose your figure of merits. This is if you want a good read. You have to accept the risk, and you have to accept you satisfies. This is satisfying. I can't get everything, so what can I get? Or what's a full solution that meets all my minimum thresholds? Because there's a cost to exploring other thresholds, and cost to exploring the full. This is a concept called a Pareto frontier. Like, how much am I willing to pay just to design something if I know I can get a bunch of people in a room together and get it mostly right? How much am I willing to pay on design? I think I think a good example of this type of thing is uh, uh, Pathfinder, the the Mars, the first like Mars rover. Um, I listened to a podcast uh, from our our good friend uh, Jake at We Martians podcast. He did a, a special on Pathfinder. And it it was, it was a demonstrator, you know? It's like, we don't have that much money. or well, we have some good ideas. Let's give it a shot. And then it worked out and exceeded everybody's expectations. And that led to better knowledge net optimizations. But they flew it with, you know, like, we don't know what's going to happen here. We... Like you said with Buzz Aldrin, flying it improves your knowledge of how it's going to perform. It's easy to get 85% of the weight there, but the extra 15% are the hardest part of development. And yeah, and some people yeah. are okay with 85% good. Mall's Pathfinder was a discovery program mission, just to give you a heads up. So right. these are cost-capped kind of programs and everything. So. And applying that to rocket propellants, I think like, at the time, they needed the, you know, JATO missions needed something, or JATO projects needed something that worked. And if you can do a better, great, we'll, we'll buy the better one. But we need something. And uh, when I said that was my question, I lied. Uh, uh, this is my actual question. Uh, but that was, I think that was a good question, too. Uh, in this book, you know, we talked about, you know, scientists and that regard for safety and whether that affects innovation. Uh, I want to take that on a different vein. Uh, Throughout this book, there's a lot of instances where individuals are, these are chemists, professional chemists, going through a list of elements, going through a list of compounds, matching those up with potential oxidizers and brute forcing research, right? So they make some educated guesses to where to start, but they're spending every day, eight hours a day, testing at one combination or the next day and the next day. Uh, Versus a lot of these breakthroughs that happens, this is something that happens a lot of times throughout this whole process, uh, is these people, you know, accidentally stumble onto these really performing mixtures. Uh, In chapter one, I think they talked about red fuming nitric acid. Uh, We talked about having, you know, metallic, uh, 
additives on that rag and oh it's like oh the combustion's a lot easier from there and from that accident they basically discovered adding metallic catalysts to fuels which had its own research arc and so the question is is it generally better for directed brute force research or is it worthwhile to seek out those potential breakthroughs how much money do you have and how much re- how much experience and do you how have? much time do you have so like for example if i have 10 things right each of those 10 things in a feed forward or feedback loop could potentially there's like 10 to the 10 possible options of how they could interact they're like a interacts with b b interacts with a a interacts with c c interacts with d like there are 10 to the 10 possible things and that so i could clear on. when we're talking about those those interactions with regards to rocket fuels uh each of those interactions could have a dozen or more actual like sub interactions because you're taking two complex chemicals combusting them decomposing them down into sub compounds they have their own reactions and then you get to your exhaust compounds yeah so each one of those interactions is its own massive nebula yeah so like you get to the point where you're dealing with like two to the n to the n like possible combinations of stuff oh wait you gotta get lucky or you have to have really, really low-cost testing, which for them it seemed to be like a match in a rag. You just test it. Okay, yeah, it, it caught on fire real good. We did it. We did it, guys. Time to go to space. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, more complex. I'm sure it's much more complex. I'm not a chemist. Um, I only have a basic understanding of chemistry from you know, engineering chemistry classes. But when you look at these things, the Brute forcing, trial and error, is never the best way to do something. Um, but it's important for the beginning of a screening design where you need to understand the, the kind of realms that you can then further explore. And when you look at how this book describes the process of how they, they discovered these, it's kind of hard to come up with a, alright, this is what we're going to do in a time efficient manner. To, to solve these issues and find what we're looking for, because they really were just exploring and see what worked and what didn't. So I don't know of a way that what they could have, what they were doing could have been done faster or better. But in terms of what we do now, um, at least not on this cutting edge of really fundamental big leaps forward, um, when, you're, when you're working in established areas, you try and these discoveries in a much more structured way. I'm a fan of what I like to call refined guess and check. Knowing what you're capable of, what's in reach, and you can get so far on what you've been taught, what you know, your own experiences. And for a group like RIT Space Exploration, we had a, sort of a limited experience, but we, we knew what was in reach, but we weren't very good at it. We shot for it anyway. And then you keep pushing yourself that extra, extra little 10%. Um, and in that 10% space where, you know, you really aren't experienced enough to do it the right way. But you can guess and check and kind of sometimes you get lucky. And it's worth trying. It's worth seeking out, you know, maybe if I did this, it would be better. And you don't exactly understand why at the time, but you don't really need to right away you don't need to know why right away so that's the yeah no. <laughs> that's the refined guess and check method that i that i use i i've been told like a really good research pathway is can how why should and i brought that up with a basic research you know you sought out like can this do that how does it do that or how does it this affect that why does it do it and then should we and i i don't know i've, re- I've really really liked that kind of curiosity like you Let's just experiment. Can A affect B? How does A affect B? Why does A affect B? And should we affect A to cause an outcome in B? And I don't know. That I've kind of kept that kept that on hand. I like that. So Yeah, I think it just because if you don't understand something though the entire like you don't understand the whole process. You don't un, you don't you found something that works good but you haven't done the analysis to show that it is truly optimized or something like that. I think uh, 
the brute force method comes in handy for that extra extra thing that you know to kind of push yourself a little further it's definitely a tool in the toolbox all right so i think that that's it for uh chapters one and two of ignition an informal history of rocket propellants by john d clark the next two chapters three and four is what i think we'll cover in a future episode and that's the hunting of the hypergall and its mate that's chapters three and four um it's about 20 pages so i think we'll we'll you know, read the chapter, present a few questions, and have another awesome discussion like this. And um, Anthony, you're always welcome to, to join us to either talk about your personal projects or to join us for this Specscast book club. Yeah, feel free to summon me whenever you need a uh, co-host. Just say my name three times and I'll appear and talk to you about policy. No. Okay, do I have to say it into a Windows phone or...? Any kind of Windows is appropriate. You could even say to Cortana. Right? Just like, hey Cortana, and There's oh, a- oh god, oh god, okay, no, we're good. Um, <laughs> and I'll just show up, so. There's an Anthony Hennig live now. <laughs> it just slowly flips and it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feel free to summon me anytime. Okay, so, um, awesome. And to, our, to listeners that uh, are interested in this book, again, the PDF is, is Google-able, it's searchable. Um, but through your local library, you might be lucky enough to get a hard copy. And uh, you can start a discussion with us on Twitter at RIT Specs or send us an email at specscast at gmail.com. Um, we, you know, we could talk about this for hours. In fact, we have talked about this for hours already. So, <laughs> yeah, this has been fun. Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RIT Specs facebook.com slash RITSpecs or send an email to specscast at gmail.com You can learn more about RIT space exploration and specscast at specs.rit.edu Our music is by Nelson Scott Find more at his website thenelsonscott.com